Amen. Have a seat and turn in your Bible, not to the book of Acts. I know that we've been doing that every Sunday because we're in a series in Acts, going verse by verse through that book, and it's great. Uh, We're going to take one week off uh, right here. Uh, Well, actually a few weeks off, but uh, we're going to take today off from that, and we're going to look briefly at Mark chapter 1, at the baptism of Jesus. Uh, this is a little bit of a different Sunday. We have baptisms today, one in first service and one in second. Uh, we also are just hearing a lot of testimonies, hearing from Johan and, and, and such. Um, in, in the book of Acts, if we were to continue, if we were to dive in this morning, uh, we would be starting the story of Stephen, the first martyr in church history. And it's like two chapters. And so it would take three weeks to do it. And, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna not just tease ourselves with that this morning because this is gonna be a shorter sermon, uh, with so much going on and, um, Mark chapter one. But I think it's very fitting. And I want us to really think about baptism and about what Jesus baptism really, really shows us. Okay. So turn with me to Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, if you're not there already. Um, The Gospel of Mark is asking pretty basic questions. You know, if someone becomes a new Christian, you know, if that's you, um, if someone's been a Christian for a long time, it's just as helpful, actually. But when someone becomes a brand new Christian, it's the shortest Gospel, it's the simplest Gospel, it's a great place to start if you're just reading the Bible for the first time and you want to learn about Jesus. The Gospel of Mark is, is perfect for that. Um, but the Gospel of Mark is just answering basic questions. Who is Jesus? What does that mean for me? That's it. That's what Mark is trying to say. He's trying to answer those questions. And in chapter 1, he gets right to it as he's talking about who Jesus is and as he's presenting Jesus to the early church as he's recording the Gospels and to us today. And he is, um, yeah, like showing that Jesus got baptized. But what does that even mean? That's the question we need to think about. So let me read to you Mark 1, uh, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased." The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. All right, let me pray briefly. Father in heaven, would you open the heavens this morning and descend on our lives and hearts? And make very clear to us the gospel. Make very clear to us who this Jesus is, who is our Savior, who was baptized. And show us what that means for our daily lives, for us as followers of Christ, for us as people. Um, In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So I want to look quickly at three truths about the Savior. 
Three truths about the Savior that Mark is giving to you this morning in chapter 1, verse 9 to 13. And the first one is this, Jesus is the God-man. Jesus is the God-man. Key part here is Jesus of Nazareth. It's interesting, you know, if you read verse 9, and you think as you're reading verse 9 about all that Mark is showing us about Jesus in his whole gospel, or even what he just said in verse 1 of chapter 1, where he said that this is a book about the Son of God. So Jesus is this unique Son of God. It's not just any old person, but then he does say, in another sense, he is a person. He's from where? Nazareth. Jesus is, yes, glorious and eternally God the Son and infinitely worthy of our praise. And he's God in all the transcendence that that makes you think about of what it might mean really to be God. And yet he is, because of the incarnation, man of Nazareth. Of Nazareth, a small town of 200 people. Jesus of Wendell, okay? Of Fuquay. I pick on Fuquay a lot, okay? I don't know. Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, verse 7 and 8, John has been building up to this. He talks about the one who is coming after him, whose sandals he's not worthy even to untie. It's this big buildup, and then he comes from Nazareth. I recently got to go to Israel and see all these places. And when we were on, it says here, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth. You see, it says, of Galilee. Galilee is the region around this big sea called the Sea of Galilee. And it's in the northern part of Israel. And actually, when we were on the Sea of Galilee, I'll show you a picture. We were in this boat, and someone pointed to these mountains and said, do you see that little, that little sort of you know, valley in the middle of those mountains. That's the only clear passageway that a person could actually walk through those mountains from Nazareth to Galilee. That is most definitely the path that Jesus took as he came to this region of Galilee from Nazareth. And it was just so amazing. In verse you know, 9 here, it says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and it says he was baptized by John in the Jordan. These are real places. You know, we were there as well, and we went to the Jordan River, and there are lots of people lining up to get baptized, and, and that comes out of the Sea of Galilee down to the, to the Dead Sea. And so, so anyways, Jesus is the God-man, fully God, yet of Nazareth, born of Mary, fully man. Why did Jesus get baptized, you might say? He is sinless. The Bible says he is sinless. This story this morning kind of says he is sinless when the Father says, I'm pleased with you. Why did Jesus get baptized? The answer is to identify with you and me. The answer is to show his close alignment with Sinners for whom he came to save. The God-man, Jesus from Nazareth, a humble king 
What was King Herod doing at this time? He wasn't getting baptized by John the Baptist. What was Caesar doing? What would great wealthy leaders in our day be doing? Not that, a humble king, the God-man. Pastor and author Sinclair Ferguson, he says, and I quote, what we have here is Jesus' public acknowledgement that he has come, watch this, to stand where sinners should stand. Receive what they should deserve. And in return, give them his gift of grace and fellowship with God. Jesus, very uniquely as the God-man, he is this mediator between God and man. In fact, Paul puts it that way. There's one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Three truths about Jesus. The first one, that he's the God-man. The second one, that Jesus is God the Son. That Jesus is God the Son, the second person of what Christians call the Trinity. Look at verse 10. And when he came up, do you see this? Out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open in the Spirit. That's a capital S in your translation? Good, then it's right. The Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. There's a lot in these verses. Like, you see the word immediately. Did you know the word immediately is in the Gospel of Mark 41 times? So if you're a person that just likes to get to the point of things, Mark is your gospel, all right? He's like, I don't have time for this. Immediately! Um, It's here. And so he says, immediately... When Jesus came up out of the water, it says the heavens were torn open. This word for torn, it's the same word in John 21, for the veil was torn from the holy of holies. Same word where the fishermen had their nets torn. The same word where in Acts 14, the people uh, tear their garments. It's this idea of something being ripped apart. It says the heavens were were torn open. What was this like? This was amazing this day. And it says, the Spirit descended upon him like a dove. This brings all kinds of recollections for people standing there at the Jordan River who knew their Hebrew Old Testament. And for you, if you're a Christian and you know a little bit about the Bible, you might think about Genesis 1, where it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. And listen, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God's doing something. The creation God is doing a new creation. But who do we see involved in the baptism of Jesus? We see the full Trinity. Whose voice is it that speaks out at this baptism? It's the Father. The Father says, this is my beloved Son. Who is it that's getting baptized? It is the beloved Son, Jesus. Who is it that descends like a dove? It's 
the Holy Spirit. Again, one God, yet three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is what Christians refer to as the Trinity. Jesus is God the Son, the second person within the Trinity. And you know what? His baptism shows us that. What does Jesus' baptism show the world? Three truths. The first one, that Jesus is the God-man. The second one, that he's God the Son. And the third, that Jesus is the new Adam who overcame temptation. Let me show you. Look at verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Hmm. We're, we're kind of past the baptism now, so why are we talking about it, Matt? Okay. Because it's part of this one passage. And, and what we see here, again, the Holy Spirit, capital S, drives, leads, guides the Son of God, Jesus, into the wilderness for 40 days. And there is this temptation. And who is tempting? It says Satan. It's important to, to, to know if you're a Christian and just kind of new maybe to the Bible that, that the Bible talks about this person, this being named Satan. He's real. He's powerful. He's a created being. It's not dualism. It's not God versus Satan in the Marvel Universe. No, he's a created fallen angel. He's a liar. He's an accuser of God's people. He's a tempter. Know this, he has limitations. But know this, he is an already defeated enemy. But in this story, at this point, before the cross of Jesus Christ, he tempts Jesus in the wilderness. And what does Jesus do? Well, he overcomes temptation. It's really amazing if you think about this little snapshot that Mark, in his efficient language of verses 12 through 13, is giving us because when you see it referring to the animals and you see someone with animals around them and you see them being tempted by Satan, what do you think of? The Garden of Eden. And that's exactly what Mark wants us to think of. And it's really what he's saying is that Jesus is the new Adam where Adam failed, the new Adam overcame. And that's it. Romans 5 puts it this way. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So three truths about Jesus, you know, from his baptism that he's the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, that he is God the Son, and that he is the new Adam. So what does this mean for us? Again, Mark is asking the question, who is Jesus, and answering it. And he's also pressing us to think about what does that mean for our lives. And so quickly, I want to give you three implications or applications for our lives. And the first one flows right out of this new Adam point that we made. But here's, here's what I want to 
press us toward today to embrace gift righteousness. See, the obedience of Jesus Christ accrued for him perfect righteousness. And the gospel, according to the Bible, the good news for Christians and for the world is that you can have that perfect righteousness. You cannot attain it on your own. In fact, you already have failed to attain it, and all of us are sinners and have attained what is called unrighteousness. Jesus perfectly accrued righteousness. He was sinless, but he wasn't just sinless and neutral. He was positive and righteous, such that the Father at his baptism says, this is my son. I'm pleased with Jesus. So we have to embrace the central message of Christianity that the only kind of righteousness that thrills our hearts is gift righteousness, not our own righteousness. Philippians 3 says this, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Amen? Gift righteousness. Gift righteousness. That's what the Bible talks about. Not your righteousness, not mine. It only talks negatively about that. Gift righteousness. Righteousness that's not in here, but's out there, but that is given to me from God. That's grace. Gift righteousness. Really, the idea here is imputed righteousness, and that's just a term from the law schools. It means to attribute or to ascribe to another. In fact, I was looking, Cornell Law School's website defines to impute this way. To impute could mean to place responsibility or blame on a person for the acts of another person due to their relationship. That's the gospel. John Owen puts it this way. We ourselves have done nothing of what is imputed to us, nor Christ anything of what is imputed to him. Paul says it this way. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so one of the things that, that we've got to see when we look at the baptism of Jesus and we hear you know, the voice of the Father saying over the Son, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased, is to remember that if we want to live our lives under the smiling and pleased voice of the Father, we have to be in the Son, in Christ. God is never more pleased with you than he already is when you are truly by faith found to be in Jesus Christ, whom he is pleased with. So embracing gift righteousness. And the second implication I want to encourage you with 
is to embrace humility. To embrace humility. How can we not embrace humility? We see Jesus Christ, God the Son, Jesus Christ, the God-man, in line at the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist to identify with us as sinners. And guys, this is just the beginning of the story of the gospel where profound humility will be on display from our glorious yet humble King and God. And so I'm just going to give those two applications this morning. Embrace gift righteousness and embrace humility. And perhaps a major step of humility for us this morning would even be just to acknowledge that we have no righteousness apart from Christ and to open up the empty hands of faith and ask God to save us. And if he's already saved you, ask God to fill our minds and hearts with an obsession not about our performance or righteousness, but about Jesus in our place. Amen? Amen. Let me close in prayer.